I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hope everybody's doing well. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed podcast. And today we have a friend calling in from Providence, Rhode Island, and his name is Dr. Luke Mezik. He works at Harvard currently, and he's got a new book out we're going to discuss. How you doing, Luke? Doing great. Doing great. Really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. It seems that you have had a pretty good career in the medical industry, and you came out with this book that is called Your Money or Your Life. How does that resonate, you know, with having a a good career path? I got into medicine because I'd met and worked with some people who I really admired, Dr. Paul Farmer and other people working in global health, really working to make sure that the fruits of modern medicine reach the poorest of the poor. And that was really my introduction to what medicine could do, how many lives it could save, how many people it could bring back from the almost dead. And that was truly inspiring to me. So that was the beginning of my path in my late teens, early 20s when I was in college. And then, you know, I've been in training for the last almost 15 years. I'm 37 now. And so between medical school, graduate school, residency training, and emergency medicine, it it took me a long time to reach the end of my formal training path. And having reached it, I, I realized that there were some things about medicine that I loved, and there were some things about medicine that really left me feeling ashamed. And one of them was the way we treat patients if they can't afford to pay. I'd met a lot of patients in the emergency department who were worried about their bills or who came in way too late because they were worried that they would leave their families with a bill they couldn't afford to pay. And my first reaction to those patients was always to try to reassure them. You know, there's got to be a way, you know, you could, we can sign you up for Medicaid. We can get you financial assistance. There's got to be a way for this. Just let us take care of you. Just let us worry about the medicine and the rest of the stuff I'm sure will work out. And I realized that a lot of those assurances I was giving to pa- was giving to patients turned out to be false. They were being pursued for those bills. They were being called months after their visits. They were being billed. They were being sued in court. And that was something I hadn't realized. And when I did, I just I was overcome with first with anger, then with shame that I was involved in this system that was, you know, leaving poor patients, leaving old patients, leaving people on disability, single moms with with bills they couldn't pay and then putting them in courtrooms when they couldn't. So I think that's that's how I ended up here. Kind of a, I don't know if you want to call it disillusionment, but something wasn't living up to the ideals that I thought I was going into. Let's look at the whole structure of hospitalization. You know, I mean, I had Amy, the good nurse on here and just talking about the situation she was involved with and, and how they had to cover up or, or how the hospitals tried to cover up things that happened within the hospital. And it's somewhat of a dirty business in a way. And, and these investors that invest in these hospitals, I guess they got to make money. How do you look at that and say the structure is good? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's obviously super complicated. There's, there's many different actors. The one I focus on the most is the one that you would expect to be the most selfless. That is the nonprofit private hospital. These are hospitals that were set up, you know, oftentimes a hundred years ago or more by church groups or ethnic associations or local, you know, philanthropists to provide care 
often to often explicitly for the poor. And those hospitals have changed over time, you know, as hospitals became more popular, new surgical procedures, new technology led not just the poor to seek care in hospitals, but basically all of us. And the mission of the hospital to provide care to all started to change too, even at charitable nonprofit hospitals. These hospitals don't have, they don't have investors. There are for-profit hospitals with investors, but the, the hospitals I'm talking about, the majority of hospitals in the United States do not have investors. They don't pay out dividends to shareholders. And their their stated mission is is to provide community benefits. That's why they're tax exempt. And some of them, a lot of them are doing great work. You know, they're providing care. And when people can't afford it, they're, they're providing uh, financial assistance. They're signing people up for state programs if they are eligible for them. But a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are taking people who should be given financial assistance and instead turning around and handing them bills and then suing them in court and garnishing their wages. I mean, these are folks who work at Walmart or Burger King. Like These are not folks who can afford thousands and thousands of dollars in bills. So I think the structure of medicine in the United States is just dizzyingly complex. And there's all these actors. And a lot of them, frankly, are middlemen who are kind of skimming off the top and not providing a lot in the way of patient care. But there are some actors who we should hold to a higher standard because we expect them to do better. And one of those is the nonprofit hospital. So the a nonprofit hospital that doesn't have to pay taxes will admit you, bring you in to the hospital, do what needs to be done and then go after you. You know, why wouldn't they prevent that from the beginning? You know, don't don't bring them in the hospital. Yeah, I mean they have to. I mean we've we've made it a rule. I mean if there was a there was a problem in the 80s where hospitals were having trouble paying their bills. This was an era when they were told to tighten their belts. The reimbursements they were getting from state programs like Medicare and Medicaid were going down relative to their costs. And so hospitals were saying, we got to find a way to, to, uh, to control our costs, especially with patients who can't afford to pay. And so there was just something called patient dumping going on, where if you were coming into a hospital, oftentimes a private hospital, and they found out you didn't have insurance, and you wouldn't be able to pay out of pocket. They would just load you into an ambulance and send you over to another hospital, oftentimes the, the public hospital if, if one was close by, and drop you off. Patients were being dumped for, you know, if they were in active labor, patients were being dumped after being shot. Some people were dying en route. And so this was something that really shocked a lot of people. And it led to a new law called the EMTALA. Um, Emergency Medical Treatment in the Active Labor Act. And this was a law that said that if you show up to a hospital and you're having an emergency, then they have to do a few things. They have to give you a screening exam. And if you are found to have an emergent condition, they have to treat you. And if they transfer you, they have to do it for a good reason. Like the other hospital has something that you don't. So this was a law with good intentions. It didn't come with money though. So like hospitals were still kind of having the same problem. And so hospitals basically found another way out, which was to start to hire debt collectors to pursue patients who couldn't, who didn't pay for their bills. And they started to do this in larger and larger numbers. And so debt collection became like a huge part of the medical landscape that it wasn't before. Well, based on the conversation I had with Amy, the good nurse, and a few other people in the industry, why are the the numbers and the financials disrupted within the system? Because if you think about it, you heard the saying, you know, uh, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. 
type of thing. Are we at a point where they're getting slaughtered because they were too greedy up front and, and they're displacing their profits or whatever it is in, in other directions? I mean, why, why, you know, because when you think about medical, hospitals are full all the time. Why can't these hospitals survive on a, a normal fundamental model? than having to add all these different things to to the game. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to talk about all hospitals at the same time. I know I've been doing it through this conversation, but we should yeah. we should make a difference, make a distinction between different hospitals and different sorts of circumstances. So some hospitals you think of like the huge conglomerates that have hospitals throughout a region. And, you know, they have, they're building these massive, beautiful buildings with these huge atria and you, you know, they're, they're the modern palaces of medicine and they tend to be doing quite well because they can attract high paying patients with private insurance, sometimes from abroad. And they, focus their efforts on services that reimburse well, you know, high-tech services and procedures that will reimburse well. So those hospitals tend to be doing well. Sometimes they fall on hard times, but they usually find a way to make it through. The other hospitals, you know, rural hospitals, critical access hospitals, hospitals and uh, safety net hospitals in poor neighborhoods, they're up against it. And they have been for a long time. You know, they're, a lot of their patients are uninsured. A lot of their patients, even if they are insured, have Medicaid, which doesn't reimburse as well. And they're they're being asked to do everything, not just the high tech, high paying stuff. And so a lot of them are in dire straits and every year more of them close. So it's a problem. It's, it's a kind of a tale of two cities where some hospitals are, you know, rich get richer. Some hospitals are hanging on by a thread. The thing that was interesting to me, though, was when I was studying medical debt and debt collection, I thought, you know, it's got to be the, the hospitals that are doing poorly, that are doing all this stuff to patients to try to get money to stay afloat. And it isn't. It's not them. Like some of the biggest, richest hospitals are the most aggressive debt collectors. They're the ones foreclosing on people's homes and and taking them to court. So it's it's a weird thing where the hospitals that are doing the best by their patients are often the ones who are the hardest, hardest up. They're the ones having the hardest time. Now, when you think about what you do teaching medical students and so forth, why is there not a linear narrative, right, with the the medical people and the facilities. It's like if you got a classroom of people, they have no idea where they're going to work. And, mm. you know, if they go somewhere, there's one narrative at this place, there's one narrative at this place. If that's the foundation of the medical system is the doctors, how do you give them more, I guess, power or give mm. them more, more of a position to be involved in the financial decisions and, and things like like that, because I think if the narratives complement each other, mm. right, instead of just some student going to work somewhere, right, and not knowing what they're going to get into. Yeah. Um, I hear do, you. You, do you see anything like that that could help the system? The strange thing is that doctors and patients have kind of grown farther and farther apart in some of these relationships. I mean, I still stand in front of patients every day and ask them how they're feeling and ask them what brought them in and try to diagnose their illness. But I'm not the one who's who's telling them how much they owe and presenting them a bill every quarter and going to their house and seeing if I'm going to exchange, you know, what they owe for a chicken or some part of their crops like they did in the 1900s. Like these these were these used to be personal relationships where doctors and patients had to decide together what chair your bill can you afford? When are you going to pay it? Am I just going to write it off entirely? And that that doesn't happen now. I mean, maybe there are some doctors who do that, but most of us work for these very large institutions, practice groups that are very large or 
large hospitals, some of them growing larger every day, some of them being bought up by private equity or by insurance companies. And so we are more and more kind of cogs in a machine uh, rather than independent professionals. And that's been a hard pill to swallow for a lot of a lot of us. You know, we don't we see ourselves as kind of independent actors, but more and more we're not. And so, you know, when we when we're in medical school, I think a lot of us are still kind of imbibing this this traditional ethic that we are kind of our own men, our own women making our own decisions. And then when we enter practice, we realize that's not true. A lot of us are just are, are being told what to do to an extent that we didn't expect. And so we have to we have to make our peace with that some way. And, and I think one of the ways is to understand more of the systems that we're working in. Who do we work for? And what are their interests? And what are they trying to do? And how do they interact with patients? And what and, and is the way that they're interacting with our patients interfering with the patient-doctor relationship? And what should we do to make sure that that relationship is maintained, that that trust is maintained? Because if we don't have that, then, you know, medicine's really in trouble. So I think you're totally right that we don't have like a good narrative of what our work is these days and who we are in the medical system. It's not like everything was perfect when doctors had more of a say in what was going on, but there is something to be said for making sure that people who are involved in caring for patients also have a say in what happens to those patients when they leave. Well, didn't the term uh, bedside manner come from the medical world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the core of the relationship. That's what patients come in for, to to be heard, to be understood, to be diagnosed, to be treated, to be cured if possible. And that's that's what we base all of these all of these other industries, all of these other facets of healthcare are really built around that like that one fundamental relationship. We got to protect that. Well, I mean, if you look at this as in a broader scale and think I've, I've been saying that I think we're at a point where narratives are exhausted within society hmm. and that things need to be rebirthed or birthed the right way. So when you think about pocket narratives, this has been a big thing I've been talking about. I, I just came up with the word pocket narrative. But when you start looking at streamlining hospitals, doctors, and looking at pocket narratives within society, pushing people a certain direction because of those financial situations. You know, if you took some of those pocket narratives out of society and, you know, me and Gail Joe talked about preventative. If we're, the hospitals are overflowed, the hogs are getting slaughtered, we're at that point. Maybe we look at a system that we reset where we start talking more preventative, taking out pocket narratives that cause some of these issues or set up some of these issues, you know, whether it's foods, whether it's community, rich or poor, because he made one statement that the biggest component of sickness is poor. Right. And you're talking about these poor area hospitals that people are just fading away from. So where are those people going to go, right? What's going to happen there? Something has to be done. I mean, it's 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 kind of a linear thing to everything else that's going on in society. You know, who's going to wake up and say, hey, how do we maybe take a preventative approach, understand the economic conditions of these people when they're born, and let's change. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We keep a lot of emotions bundled up inside in life, and sometimes we got to talk to people. I witnessed the benefits with my own two eyes. I have a close friend that was struggling with depression and felt like she had no one she could consistently talk to because of her busy schedule. She was matched with a therapist through BetterHelp. After several months of sessions, I've seen a tremendous change in her personality and in her life. If you're needing therapy and and want to get some of those things off your chest, it's entirely online and designed to conveniently work around your schedule and empower you to be the best version of yourself. Just fill out a questionnaire and they will align you with the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash unimpressed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash unimpressed. In some pocket narratives to direct them a different way. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I think I think a lot of our work is narrative, right? A lot of what I do every day is I, I go ask patients their story. You know, what brought you in today? What happened yesterday? What happened the day before that? What did it feel like? Who's with you? You know, my whole the whole ability to diagnose is based on the history. And so if we want to diagnose the current condition of the medical system, then a lot of that's going to be the history too. And that's what I tried to lay out in the book. But a lot of that comes from just listening to patient stories and understanding where they're coming from. And so I lean on, I lean on journalists and other historians who have actually like sat down and talked to patients. I look at records of, you know, court records and interviews. And I think a large part of our work clinically is doing histories and a large part of our work, you know, in terms of policy or in terms of, you know, reforming the healthcare system has to be based on that as well. It has to be based on patient's experience. And a lot of the stuff I talk about is that the fact that we've gotten so so divorced from doing that in certain realms, you know, not not clinically, but like financially, we never talk to our patients about money because we don't want to be seen as having a hand in that. I'm not I'm not telling you that I'm not going to care for you ever if you don't have money. But we should understand our patients' worries about money. And I think I think that's part of the point of the book that doctors can't be we can't be hands off in terms of knowing what our patients are going through. We have to we have to ask them if they are going to be able to afford their medicines, if they're going to be able to come back for that next visit, or if they're going to be too afraid to do so. Because mm-hmm. if we, and if they, if they say no, if they say they are not going to be able to afford their medicine, we have to ask why, and we have to get to the bottom of that, and we have to be part of the solution. So I, I'm totally with you. Narrative is everything. We got to get the right stories from the right, right people. Yeah, because we were talking about the word calorie, and the word calorie was used to push capitalism in the food industry after World War II. Right. So what, you know, what narratives are out there that are push been pushing, I guess, a capitalistic uh, direction that may be old and played out that needs to be gone away with? Is there any of those things out there that you've recognized that they've served what they're supposed to serve and now it's to let's find something different? 
Is there any core like themes like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of them is that we we have a lot of middlemen in the healthcare system, insurance companies, pharmacy benefit managers, these things that, you know, you have to really dig to understand what they do, you know, and I think debt collectors are another one that these these are folks who make money off the healthcare system who don't provide care and don't improve care. And to the extent possible, we should we got to buy them out, you know, keep them out of the system or find a way to make their work more useful because right now they're just, they're skimming off the top. And I think hospitals to a certain extent do this at their worst. And all, you know, everyone in the healthcare system could afford some measure of self-criticism and looking at ourselves and saying, what are we doing that helps patients? And what are we doing that isn't helping patients or isn't helping anyone really other than ourselves? Mm -hmm. And if we can redesign a healthcare system that has less waste and less people doing things that aren't helping people, then we'll be in a much better place. I mean, if the folks who were denying patients insurance claims or getting on the phone with them six times a day to tell them to pay up on their bills they can't afford. Instead, help them sign up for hospital financial assistance or sign up for insurance and made sure that they had food that they needed, you know, healthy food that they needed, like you're talking about, uh, and really accompanied them in their illness, we'd be in a much better place. We'd probably end up spending less money on healthcare overall. And those patients would certainly end up better. So yeah, I'm with you. Like there are stories that have been played out or roles in our healthcare system that have outlived their usefulness if they had it. And we really need to work on redesigning it. I talk about single payer healthcare in, in the book, like, you know, Medicare for all. I do mm -hmm. think that's a preferable system, certainly to what we have now. And, you know, some of the other countries that used to have systems more like ours, like Canada, they had a really wrenching transition into a system more like Medicare for all. But now if you ask Canadians, they would never live without it. If you ask people in the UK, they, they say it's their favorite British thing is the National Health Service. Better than the royal family, better than British food, if you like British food. This is stuff that people see as like a huge integral part of their lives. And if we, can you imagine people in America talking about the healthcare system like that? Like their favorite mm -hmm. American thing is the American healthcare system. Like yeah. I've never met anyone who said that, but yeah. We could get there. Well, it's it's funny you talk about these these middlemen and I have this thing I created finding a perfect audience and it's how to create a pure source customer, right? By law of attraction. Because you really you really don't have to sell someone anything. If you, if you put out some content that's entertaining, relatable, or educational, by law of attraction, people will respond and start to identify what the demographics are of a pure source. So if you have a pure source, if it's the doctors, whoever it may be, wherever the pure source narrative is coming from, from the medical system, that really is a true definition. And I'm just trying to just put an example together. It has a true definition, understands the sensibilities of that source. When you plug in these middlemen, they have no idea what the sensibilities are of the business. Mm. And I call that fractional data. And in my opinion, if you understand that and look at that and the people that are creating the pure source, you know, they could get rid of those pieces of the puzzle and streamline their pure source narrative. It's just getting the getting the gatekeepers out of the way. Because I think whoever's running, whoever is making those decisions has to understand the sensibilities of the business, whatever it is, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a doctor's office, whatever it is. You really have to understand that because you, 
you know, I'll give you an example. Like, you know, if you're a CEO of a company, right, and you're selling tissue and the CEO likes fishing, you know, and the CEO has an ego to make a fishing commercial with tissue, there's probably going to be a, you know, a little bit of not a pure source there. You know, that's going to be way far away from what his customer really is and how he needs to communicate with his customer. To me, it's just in the communication and understanding the sensibilities of, of where this information is coming from. Yeah. And I, th- I think this is on the same, I think, I think I'm, I'm picking up what you're laying down. Like the, I've been talking a lot about doctors, but it shouldn't just be doctors I'm talking about. Because if you ask patients or Americans, what professionals do you trust the most? The answer is almost always nurses, not even just healthcare professionals. Like what professionals do you trust the most? Mm-hmm. It's almost always nurses. And you can see why that is. I mean, that nurses, when you come into the hospital or go to your doctor's office, like they are the ones the most engaged in actually given given care, making sure you're comfortable, making sure you get the meds, making sure they're checking in on you, doing really the hard labor and expert labor of making sure that you have the care you need. And we in emergency medicine, we lean super hard on nurses to make sure that we're we're doing right by our patients, that we're not missing something. When when we started to lose nurses at the beginning of the pandemic because they were quitting the profession or leaving or getting sick, you know, the emergency department just stopped working entirely. And it's, it's barely working now because some of them have started to come back, but we're still in big trouble. Anyway, the the big problem is almost never with those folks who really understand the most. It's, you know, the nurses understand the most. And then doctors are a little further down and administrators are way further, way further below. So I think you're right that the folks who have the the deepest and closest understanding of what people are actually going through are the ones who have the trust. And that, that trust is earned. You know, people have a good sense generally of who they should trust. Because if you, I guess if you could bottle that, you know, if you could bottle that real time information and some some way communicate that all the way through the whole system and if the people that you want to potentially hire or bring on or whatever to work they have to understand this narrative if not they don't get involved because yeah. i think that makes a big that that makes a bigger change in how decisions are made understanding that bottle what you said about the nurses then the doctors you know each prong or whatever it is that's the real information that needs to be understood by the business people. And I guarantee you, based on what you're saying, the business people probably have no idea what the sensibilities <laughs> are on the hospital floor. Yeah, that is interesting, right? Like there was an interesting paper that came out about a year ago that showed that more and more of hospital boards are made up of people who really have nothing to do with care at all. They're not nurses. They're not doctors. They're not scientists. They're usually like financial executives and they're they're used to dealing with dollars and cents, bottom lines. And you can understand how someone who's used to dealing with, you know, profit and loss statements would look at a look at losses due to, you know, say patients being unable to pay their bills and say, we gotta, we gotta fix that. You know, how are we gonna fix that? Well we gotta we gotta make them pay up. You know, and so that that sort of value system really leads to different outcomes and things that really hurt us when we're treating patients. It leads to outcomes like patients coming in with cancer too late to get treated because they were worried that their families would be left with a bill too big to afford, which I've seen. So, you know, yeah, you're totally right. If, if we're not all on the same page, if we don't all have the same basic value set, then we're in big trouble. The name of the book Dr. Luke has out now is called Your Money or your life. And we've been discussing some of these things. And well, I mean, what was your sole purpose of the book? And what are you looking to achieve with the book? 
I wanted to understand how we got to where we are, how we got to this place where, like you said, we're not on the same page. We don't have the same narrative and patients are being pursued aggressively and being brought to court for the crime of fallen sick. And I, I wanted to know where that came from and how we could stop it. Because I think it's it's really ruining kind of our raison d'etre, like our, our, our reason for going into medicine. And the trust that we build up with patients can't survive that sort of relationship. So that was why I wrote the book. And I hope I hope it helps us move towards a better place. Well, the, you know, the other thing, the other argument you can have is our government or whoever it is that has to make the, these decisions on improving the process, you know, the preventative way, educational and, and all those things might be the route because, you know, if, if these people are falling sick because of the way our country is structured, <laughs> isn't the responsibility on those decision makers? Because it's like, we're part of the problem. We're Let's say we're part of the problem. We're 30% of the problem of getting these people sick. Yeah. And then we go, we're going to, you know, run away and, and not acknowledge it when the debt collectors come after you. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, this is what I'm talking about is like way downstream, right? Like if you're, yeah. if you're showing up to the ED and worrying about your bill, you know, sometimes it's something that can't be prevented, but oftentimes it's something that with, you know, with, with better preventive care, better living conditions, with better working conditions, then people might not have never have had to worry about that to begin with. You know, we know that people who come in with preventable illnesses are disproportionately poor and disproportionately disadvantaged and, and neglected. And so, yeah, we, we have a lot of work to do to make sure that we, we get, like you're talking about the preventive care, education and improved conditions way upstream before we ever have to talk about emergency room visits and debt collection. I think these these conversations are all interlinked too, because oftentimes yeah. it's the same pe same people we're talking about who are affected by all of it. So yeah, I, I totally hear you. I think you're you're absolutely right that our focus needs to be, you know, we're building palaces in the sky in medicine and they're beautiful. And I think that's in some ways, you know, I I wouldn't change that. I think that people should have dignified places to get care when they need it. But we should be spending and focusing on making sure people need it far less often. Now, if we want to find the book, where do we look for the book and where can we get it? Your Money or Your Life Debt Collection in American Medicine. It's available on Amazon. You can pre-order it there or at your local bookstore. And you had a uh, book previous to this one, right? Yeah, that was, uh, it's called No More to Spend. That book was about Africa and um, colonial medicine in what was once British colonial Africa. So that was kind of a, a deeper history of a, a very different place. So what are you, Egyptian? No, no, I'm, I, I was born here. My dad, my dad was born in Haiti. My mom was born in a farm in Oregon. So I'm a little, a little bit mixed uh, and uh, had a, an upbringing of a couple different cultures, but found my way to East Africa and Southern Africa when I was doing my PhD in history, where I did a lot of my research until I came back here to finish my medical training and realized that I had a lot of interests and uh, concerns about how medicine was working here too. Uh, well, does that come, and just, just out of curiosity, does that come from a philosophical point of view, spiritual point of view, like, you know, around your family and, and who you are and where you're from? Yeah, it has to. I mean, my mom grew up on a farm in Oregon and had, you know, six brothers and sisters and tight-knit family, but, you know, didn't have everything growing up, but still found a way to make life work. My 
my dad kind of same way, grew up in Port-au-Prince, Haiti and moved as an immigrant to the States in his teens and had to struggle to to get through and reach his goals. But also they raised me, they raised me Catholic. I went to church every week and there's a kind of theology in Catholicism called the liberation theology. And that says that, you know, if you, li- if you read the gospels, it says Jesus made a preferential option for the poor. And he really focused his ministry on them. And we too should focus our efforts on making sure that everyone can live a decent life and that people aren't trampled by life circumstances or by structures they have no control over. So I think all of that really led me to believe that people can do all sorts of amazing things no matter where they come from. We just have to be a part of the solution rather than the problem. Well, I think the book's a great topic to tackle. And I don't think I've heard anything about this this type of narrative. So I wish you the best of luck there. And I, and I appreciate you coming on the show. This has been Dr. Luke Messick. And my name is John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Thank Thanks you. so much, John. I really appreciate it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.